Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. Circle will rise. To do for each other, to avenge any brother, a fight to the knife and the knife to the hilt. A brother now languishes in prison through the instrumentality of one Colonel Theodore Walters, the guiding spirit of the Sphinx Club, a band of amateur criminologists who have made the mistake of tampering with the circle. I submit to you the name of Theodore Walters. What is your verdict? So be it. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of 50 Date Night Screams. I am one of your co-hosts, Amber Tresca. I'm here with my my only co-host. I was going to say with (laughs) another co-host, but there's only two of us. So I'm here with my co-host, Mike Tresca. Mike, what's good? The other co-host, yes, yes. I don't Maybe know. The, co- I... the, the, the third and the fourth co-hosts are <laughs> wine and beer. Is that yeah, that's what it. I was thinking He's of? That's definitely... my story. I do wonder if there's any facial recognition that picks up the skull. You know, sometimes with iPhones and stuff, it's like that's a head, that's a face. But yeah, there he is. Yeah, Skull-like. you can't see because this is a podcast. But Mike uh, <laughs> drinks out of a mug that is a giant golden skull. It's a little bit uh, the skulls of my enemies type of thing. Yeah, okay, totally. Anyway. We are on episode 34. This is the Crooked Circle from 1932. Before we get too far into this, I have thought way too much in the past few days about how a circle could be crooked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. It's, I know that's not what it means, but I'm kind of like, you can't a circle by definition kind of can't be crooked i don't understand anyway um there are lots of movies with this name there are lots of other things with this name but this is the version that is black and white from 1932 the director is h bruce humberstone which sounds like something out of a jk rowling book (laughs) it has 5.3 out of 10 on imdb it is 59 minutes long it is not Longer, as some sources say. It is only about an hour. The hilarious tagline is, Evil is on the way, and it's tied with a string. One of the characters actually says that in the movie. Uh, We have a couple of notable actors. We have Zazu Pitts, again. You may remember her from Strangers of the Evening. She's a well-known comedic actress in the 30s and beyond. And James Gleason, who was in Arsenic and Old Lace. He did lots of TV shows like uh, Leave it to Beaver and The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Anyone under the age of 40 has no idea what I'm talking about, but he was fairly famous. And I believe he did win an Academy Award. 
he also <laughs> he also was born so long ago that he fought in the Spanish American War. <laughs> and uh. then and then went on to fight in World War One. Wow, challenging, challenging time uh, to have to go to war twice in your lifetime. Uh, there are some content warnings. I'm going to say racism and racial slurs. Trivializing mental illness, that's not, uh, it's kind of there, but abundance of caution, so I'm just going to say. And then I'm also going to say drugging someone against their will. I didn't know how else to categorize that. Again, out of an abundance of caution. Mike, how are you feeling about the content warnings this time? I think I think that's right. There's certainly it's not extortion, but there's definitely like levels of threatening and and blackmail kind of. I mean, it's not, I guess okay. it's not blackmail. It's just it's stalking. That's the phrase I would use. There's definitely stalking involved. So, I mean, it comes with the territory. The crooked circle. Anything can go. We don't. We're not following the rules of algebra. So who knows what could come next? Following the rules of <laughs> of geometry. Geometry. I have no idea. There we I'm go. Just, That's what I meant. I meant geometry. Not algebra. I'm just like, I don't know. A circle can be crooked. Okay. So this movie doesn't have any music in. Well, no, it does actually. The, like part of the plot revolves around music in the movie. So music is used in that way, but there's not a score. So there's not like background music when, you know, things are happening. But there is some music in the beginning in the credits, which it's pretty interesting. It was, it was pretty good i had some high hopes based on the little opening but then that was it pretty much for uh i, I don't know the terms i should know the terms for the music you know behind all of the scenes that are going on although a violin does play a part um so you literally hear that plays a part. literally yeah. okay all right so also the movie opens quite well okay like this is this is very good. Enjoyed it. Uh, we see that people are meeting around a table. It kind of looks like a kind of like an old basement, and they're all wearing black hoods. So already, okay, intrigued. Uh, later, we learn that this is the Crooked Circle. I mean, you kind of, if you know the name of the movie, you probably guessed that right off the bat. But it is in fact the, the Crooked Circle. Uh, there's a skull in the middle of the table, and they're, like, taking vows. They're pledging to avenge one another, so you're getting the idea of where they're coming from right away. And we find out that one of their members has been put in prison. His name <laughs> is Ludwig Kiel. Not important at all, but I just put it in my notes. <laughs> um, and what's happening is, is they're kind of having, like, a little situation with this amateur criminologist group called the sphinx club so it's like the 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 criminologist detective group and then you have like the crime group and they're kind of i don't i don't know exactly what's been going on but at least one person has been put in jail because of this situation and i just love the notion that there are so many characters who are amateur criminologists that they've created a club i, I have this vision of all the other characters from all the other movies we watched are in this club it's not that cool but it is hilarious because it's one of those things that not only are there amateur criminologists, there are enough of them to form a club. Right. They even seem to have like a club space or something. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's pretty yeah. It's pretty wild. It does seem as though it is a place for people who are well-off or wealthy to spend their time. Mm -hmm. Why it's called the Sphinx Club, that doesn't really enter into the situation at all ever. Uh, but that's the name. So what happened is Ludwig was put away 
by something that Colonel Theodore Walters of the Sphinx Club. So Crooked Circle's pretty pissed. They decide that he needs punishment, the colonel needs punishment, and that is going to be death, as one does. Okay, so then they draw cards to see who is going to be the one that needs to carry out this execution. And there's only one female member of the Crooked Circle, and she's the one that draws the death card. So she is supposed to kill the colonel that night. And what I noticed in this, Mike, was that they showed her gripping the table yeah. quite tightly when she mm-hmm. after she drew that card, and it was said that she needed to be the one to carry out the sentence. Yeah, and it's... <laughs> this is one of those things. They are a known group of assassins, I'm pretty sure. One of their members was put away in prison, presumably for a murder, attempted murder, something along those lines. Despite all that setup, no one seems to take this crooked circle seriously, including the Sphinx Club. So it's very odd because if we follow the thread that the Sphinx Club specifically did a thing, somehow harmed the crooked circle and did it within the confines of the law that the crooked circle folks uh, were committed as, as murder or tried, you would think they would take them very seriously and also assume that, yeah, they might be targeted. And none of that comes into play. They, they treat, it, it seems very much like, it's like, ah, it's just another amateur club like us and they got mad because we beat them at chess or something. <laughs> That's right. interesting. Uh, so, yeah. So, all right, next we meet the Sphinx Club. It's a group of men. They're talking about how one of them, and his name is Brand Osborne. He just got engaged, so he's going to resign from the club because he's getting married, as one does. Uh-huh. And they're also talking about their role in helping to put away Ludwig from the Crooked Circle. Now, they're going to get a new member, because apparently, I guess, there, there may be some minimum membership. I don't know. So this other man is going to join them to take Brand's place, and they happen to mention that this man happens to be Hindu. Then they talk about how the colonel who remember he's the one that has been marked for death, is going to move into a new house on Long Island that day. And, oh, these old houses, they're so neat. They always have their legends about them. And at that point, I made a note of, uh, what old houses on Long Island that have legends about them? I don't know what this is. Amityville Horror. I I guess that could be, but it just, Long Island Which is was not later. a Way place later, anyway. <laughs> that, yeah, it is not a place where you think about, oh, there's all these old houses there yeah so definitely a weird look i grew up on long island so it's always funny this is a one in a few recently where we've been like that's not (laughs) where are you coming up with this stuff but i guess the idea is to isolate it 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 is funny because now we've seen at least a few movies where the assumption is because it's long island you are isolated and that could not be further from the truth unless you are at the far far end of long island in which case you probably can't afford it and it is uh, it is a very different situation. You are far away, and it takes a long time to get there, which, of course, characters come in and out quickly. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't work. But that's okay. These writers have never been to Long Island. Maybe not. I don't know where it was filmed. Supposedly, it took place in New York City and then Long Island. But whenever those two places are in a movie or a TV show, they always seem to not quite get it right. So... Mm-hmm. All right, the scene changes while they're talking about the house. So that's the shorthand of showing that now we're going to the house. And we see Nora Rafferty, who is the housekeeper. I did not know what she was at first. Took the second viewing for me to understand that. 
And this is Zazu Pitts. And she comes down a big staircase and some creepy dude <laughs> named Old Dan <laughs> comes up to her. I don't know what he's doing there. He tells her this story. Okay, now we're getting into this legend about the house. That the house was owned by this couple. The husband was a doctor. His name was Dr. Grayson. That he was murdered in the house, I guess. Uh, and the doctor's son used to go up into the attic and play a violin. And he did that because he was uh, interested in the girl that was uh, down the street. And he was apparently in love with her. Don't quite understand how the violin in the attic is a profession of love. But anyway, um, and it turns out this girl didn't return his affections and that she eloped with a man from the city and the son disappeared. So now sometimes Dan says he hears the violin and when he hears that, something bad always happens to someone, which is a line that is repeated very frequently throughout this movie by Zazu Pitts. Okay. And Zazu Pitts is here to Zazu it up, just to be clear. 100%. Jeez. In so. some places, this movie is categorized as a comedy. Yeah. So. So Zazu Pitts, our friend Zazu, is the same character in every movie, apparently. She is very skittish. We always say she, it's, she's not unattractive. It's kind of interesting. But So this, the film does zoom in on her face very often. But she is the kind of actress whose job is to tell you how frightened she is. More than everybody else, right? So there's lots of other people who are nervous. But she is by far and away the worst. And she, depending on who is there, reacts with abject fear. And almost what I would call Scooby-Doo fashion, which of course Scooby-Doo is drawn from these 1930s films. She's the Scooby. Uh, constantly terrified and, and maybe a shaggy, but Scooby's tends to be the one who's really terrified and really just sort of, you know, hides behind somebody else. The thing that's always interesting with Zazu, she tends to have a male counterpart. The male counterpart's not as popular, but he's just as goofy. Uh, and they pair her up. It's weird this time. Uh, last time we saw her, it was somebody who's obviously comedic as well. This character serves some functionality, but same concept, uh, meant to be there to essentially lighten the mood. Uh, and your mileage may vary when it's a 1932 movie with Zazu Pitts. Yes, and that's James Gleason. Mm -hmm. He is the he is the opposite of of her, and they play off one another. All right, we're eight minutes into the movie, folks. This, <laughs> I really tried to be succinct, but this summary is long. Okay, all right, now we're back at the Sphinx Club, and the new member shows up. His name is Yoganda. He's supposed to be Indian. He wears a turban. And the next thing that happens is a random man comes along and delivers a letter. And on this letter, the colonel opens it, and there is a drawing of a cat, a clock, and a skeleton. And the colonel says, oh, that means I've been marked for death by their crooked circle. <laughs> That's the only explanation that we get. Yoganda takes the letter, and he starts saying, I see a string, and that Evil is on the way, and it's tied with a string. Because apparently, Yoganda can see into the future. And they all decide to protect the colonel by going with him to his new house that night. Melody Manor. Melody Manor. All right. <laughs> now, Bran's fiance that he's leaving the Sphinx Club because he's going to marry her, she shows up. Her name is Thelma Parker. And she says, don't go to the house tonight. Don't go to Melody Manor. And she says, if you love me... You need to resign right now and don't go to the house. It's really clear that she knows something, but she's not telling and he's not pressing her. Now, Brand gets a phone call and the person on the other end of the line says, 
you need to do what Thelma's telling you to do. Um, all right. And meanwhile, we see Uganda and Thelma are having a conversation. We don't understand what they're talking about, but they clearly know each other and they're in cahoots and they know what's going to happen that night. Then, <laughs> then there's some discussion about how Americans of that time thought about India. And I included in my notes one of the several points where it is... I just wrote racism. I just I didn't even know what else to say. Um, the actor that plays Yoganda, his name is C. Henry Gordon. From my research, which it was hard to do, there there is not a lot about him other than the fact that he died quite young after having a a leg amputated because he'd had a blood clot in it. Gosh. Uh, yeah, so he died. It was I believe it was in 1940. Um, so very sad, but from what I understand, he was white and it did seem like he played a few characters that were supposed to be people of color throughout his career. But I don't know for a fact what his ethnicity was, but I do know that he was born in, in New York city. All right. So that part wasn't great. All right. So a man comes to Bran's apartment and by the way, there's so many characters. I don't know their names. So if they, if I felt like we didn't need to know their name, I did not bother to look it up or try to figure out what it was a man comes to brand's apartment and he holds a gun on brand and it's the same man that called him earlier somehow there's these two policemen in the street they start blowing their whistle because they see something in the window they see a man holding a gun on the other man or i don't know i'm guessing i don't know what they saw they decided they needed to go upstairs even though no one has called them they know that the police are coming because they hear the whistle so this man who broke into Brand's apartment, makes Brand change clothes with him. And then when the cops come into the apartment, he says that he's Brand and that Brand is him, the person that broke in. Okay, it's really, really weird. So then Brand has a butler. The butler comes in and Brand's like, tell them who I am, butler. And the butler's like, he points to the other guy and is like, that's the man that lives here. <laughs> It just the whole scene is confusing. Why is the butler doing that? Okay. So then they go, oh, okay, and they just take the brand in. This is how the other guy escapes because there's no explanation for why. I have so many questions about this scene particularly yes, because yes. if the so let's let's establish a few things. If this impersonator is member of the crooked circle, why don't he? Why does he not just kill Brand? Brand is not even his target. I mean, the, the, the target is the colonel, not Brand. So I don't understand why he's even getting involved, other than to keep him out of. The situation, maybe. The second thing is, if the butler is also a member, which is implied because he basically turns coat and says, "No, that's Brand isn't my my employer." Why didn't he take out Brand or do something? So both of these guys in this moment reveal their true cards, and no one deals with it. it Brand actually doesn't even mention that his butler <laughs> failed to recognize him for much of the movie after this. Because you're like, I don't understand. You just had a major betrayal. A person who works in your house sided with an intruder who said that he was you. I would be worried about going back to my house. I would fire that guy's ass. I would want to know what the hell's going. I would go with the police and be like, hey, I, I know you let the other guy go. Let's talk to my butler who obviously knew him. There's really no closure on this. And it's a very odd scene because it seems like people want Bran not to go. Um, but it's a guild of assassins. I'm like, the Crooked Circle just take you out. Like, who cares? 
I think you could make an argument maybe they were trying to help him stay out of harm's way because of some other connections that become clear later, but it doesn't make any sense why they have that scene um, at all, uh, other than to sort of, I guess, imply that to try and give you some of the identities of the Crooked Circle members, because part of the problem right from the beginning is because they're all mad, they all wear these Cobra Commander masks that you don't know who they are. You actually don't know who anybody is, right, through the whole film, who is actually a Crooked Circle member. So there's a lot of, like, trying to guess who that is, but we obviously have at least two members' faces. You know, that was the other thing. I was shocked that the guy who comes into the room, he just comes in, he's not wearing a mask, he just comes in, like, regular clothes and holds a gun to brand. Um, you know, the butler, I understand because he's bit butling, but the, uh, the intruder is just random. He just dude off the street with a gun. So none of this makes any sense, uh, except for the fact that they do get away with it, right? That's the other thing that's hilarious is because the two cops get this testimony from the butler and they get persuaded enough for at least long enough for them to only take Brandon to the police, which drags on in the next scene. Right. At this point, I don't think they're trying to figure out who's in the circle like that never comes up it's not like they go around going they must be in the circle it's never it's never even mentioned there it doesn't oh, yeah. seem like they're even trying no it's more the audience to figure going, it out like I, I don't know what it the didn't occur going to me here. i didn't understand what was going i mean i had to watch it twice to understand what was going on so at this point i'm like i don't even know the butler why is he i don't says it yeah it didn't make any sense in any case the police captain shows up at the police station and he's a friend of brands. So, you know, obviously because they're working together, right? The Sphinx club would be working with the police. And so the police captain springs him. So it's just kind of that the whole thing <laughs> is just, it goes nowhere kind of. And there's a lot of brand being unreasonably influential. I mean, this is a theme with any criminologist, these criminologists, again, this is pre code. So when, when the Hayes code fl- kicks in, police become, the experts on criminology, but pre Hayes code, they are all these sort of dashing playboy, um, you know, men of resources and, and money who are very cozy with the police, which of course usually makes them criminals most of the time. So they're actually secret masterminds in almost every film we've watched to date. But in this one, brand definitely exercises a lot of privilege where he basically says like, I know the captain and people, the cops are, afraid of that when they realize what's going on so there's a lot of like he's like no you know you know who i am right and they're like oh okay it's such a it's got a weird assumption in it because i think you'd be a little bit like okay you're friends with the police captain fine oh he's gonna spring you and vouch for you immediately and everybody's gonna get in trouble wow okay but yeah that's the way it goes here yeah in 1930s pre-haze code town Queer things about this house. But I ain't afraid of queer things. I ain't afraid of nothing. I hear Grayson's music. Yes. Oft. Sometimes I think he pays to me. He likes me. And I like him. Cause he ain't people. (laughs) He's a ghost. Yes, sir. He's a ghost. We go back to the house, and old Dan says, when the grandfather clock strikes strikes 13 at midnight, somebody has died. People have died. And he's super creepy. He's freaking out Nora, and uh, Zazu Pitts is Zazu Pitsing. 
<laughs> and so then, then the Sphinx Club shows up. Nora sees Yoganda. She's afraid of him. And then she asks him if he needs anything for his headache. And then Nora tells the Sphinx Club people about what she heard from old Dan. And Uganda once again says evil is on the way. And I once again have written a uh, discussion point racism. Okay. So <laughs> I did not understand what Nora was talking about. Apparently she's referring to the turban. Oh, yeah. And that she thinks Uganda must have a headache and does he need something for it? Yeah, she puts her hand out to take his hat. So what happens is somebody comes in and takes their hat off and gives it to her. And then she puts her hand out for his hat hat, and his head covering. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's supposed to be funny. It's, this Ha-ha. is supposed to be funny. This is supposed to be funny. Yeah. Racism. 1930s it is style. not. Okay. Now, another random old person comes by (laughs) there are two in this film there's two creepy old guys two creepy old guys so this guy comes over and he drops off a basket of tomatoes he says i'm a hermit nobody ever sees me but i always come by the first night that people are here in melody manor because they don't stay long nobody really lives here and then he repeats old dan's ghost story great okay now (laughs) gang's all here and now thelma shows up And she runs into this old neighbor and freaks out. Now we have Brand. He shows up. He's looking for Thelma. A cop shows up. He's looking for Brand because Brand was speeding on the way there and he blew past the cop. So you've just got a bunch of people in the old dark house running around looking for one another. We do get a hilarious like driving scene. I know you were like, is that green screen? Like, do they have green screen? I didn't understand. And where the cop is on his you know, motorcycle. And, and the person driving the car is, like, flying. Like, as we always are marveling at these scenes, we're just like, somebody's going to die in these. Because it looks like it's usually the actor in it, not a stunt driver. And they drive like maniacs to the point that the doors flap open on these old-timey cars. And that is definitely true. It's almost like they cut it off. He comes screeching around the corner. The cop looks like he falls off his bike. Uh, it's uh, it's traumatic. But it does, nothing really comes of this other than he gets annoyed and then he realizes who he's yelling at and he sort of let the cop lets it go. But it is, uh, it is another little window into stunt. This do your own. I do my own stunts 1930s style. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they did that scene. I, I'm kind of interested, but whatever. All right, so now Nora hears the violin music. She starts screaming. It's the house is in chaos, and now everybody whips out a gun, and they're all searching the house, and they've all got guns in their hands. And so they're in the attic. They find a skeleton up there. They're knocking things around. They happen to knock over a can of glue. Because it's a can of glue... You immediately, and because they show it, you're like, all right, well, that's going to come up later. Uh, And so we find out from one of the men that Thelma happens to be a violinist. I don't know how he knows that, but he does. So we're casting some suspicion on her. Finally. Everybody comes together again downstairs. The clock strikes 13 and the lights go out. And we've got Zazu Pitts doing her thing again. She's hiding under a table. She's starts scooting it across the floor so it looks like a table is moving you know that kind of thing all all the ha ha tees one that you could point of note 
So the guy driving like a maniac is Brand. And Brand did commit to not going to Melody Manor. However, the maid of Thelma calls him, or he calls her, and she says, oh, she went to Melody Manor. And he's like, what the hell? So now he's freaked out because she had said, don't go. She tells him not to go. I don't know what skullduggery she's up to, but she didn't keep it from her maid, who spills the beans. So if she had some master plan, it's a terrible plan because the maid lets Brand know. So Brand's whole purpose is not to participate in whatever shenanigans that the colonel has, which I guess is this sort of ceremony of Uganda replacing Brand. Brand doesn't even want to really be there. His whole purpose is to find Thelma. So that's why he drives like a maniac. And he really does spend most of the time being like, I don't have time for your stupidity. Where's Thelma? And he constantly is running around this fun house uh, to try and find her. And so he's sort of on a separate quest in the middle of this. Um, It doesn't change much because... None of the characters, I think, really know what the hell they're doing there and why they're running around. Other than people, mysteries happen and they're running around trying to figure out what it is. But Brand unwillingly is dragged into this because he was ready, to his credit, to listen to Thelma's wishes, which was to not go to the house. And when he finds out she's there, he spends all his time looking for her. Right. Now the men are searching again for somebody. And we see Uganda. He's talking to the to a, a shadow of a woman that we see. And he says, you're going to do exactly as I tell you. And then he walks towards her. He becomes in shadow and we see the two of them struggling. So it was kind of a neat little scene in, in this movie. Brand comes across Uganda and Uganda says, the Colonel has disappeared. The cop and one of the other Sphinx club men, again, I don't care what their names are. (laughs) They find the Colonel's revolver on the floor. So then they search around and they find the colonel's dead body was apparently strangled by a violin string. Oh, I didn't catch that. A violin string. Yes. But. That's not really like a string, by the way. That's like violin wire, but okay. Well, (laughs) I mean, you call it a string, but it is not like a piece of string that you would use for any other purpose. Mm -hmm. So the body doesn't show any signs of strangulation. And then they start looking around for another reason, and they think maybe the tomatoes were poisoned. And Nora, at that point, brings the tomatoes into the room. She's still moaning about whatever. (laughs) Now, the cop is up in the attic looking for who's playing this violin. And the men tell Nora, it's like I can't even believe, they tell her to go up there with the cop. They hear the music again. Again, there's chaos. Nora steps on the glue that's on a piece of fabric that's on the floor. This is hard to describe in words. And she starts to walk away, but she's dragging the fabric with her because it's glued to her. The skeleton is also on that piece of fabric that was on the floor. It's quite big. And so she's dragging it behind her, and it rather looks like it's chasing her or floating. The cop sees this. He flips out. Because he sees a moving skeleton. He runs downstairs and Nora follows him. She's also screaming. So here we go. And I have in my notes pre Hayes Code Cops comedy. <laughs> so this is Scooby doing it up. There's definitely this. You idea. knew this was coming. That's, yeah. I mean, you have to set it up, but also it kind of took some of the teeth out of it. It really wasn't that funny because you knew that it was coming. 
Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, which was so interesting to me was the skeleton itself. And we're so used to this. Maybe plastic skeletons were not a thing in the 30s. While I could see people being a little freaked out when you first encounter it, people are just full on freaked out that it exists. Like they, every time someone sees it, they're like, that's scary. And like, oh, my gosh. And, and then I think there's even a dialogue about like medical. I'm not sure exactly, but it's I guess it's supposed to be real. Now, I don't know that you could tell the difference. My reaction to that would be like that's a Halloween prop or a medical prop. So it's so fascinating because they are afraid of a thing they normally saw. They saw it once before. They know it's there. They're more concerned that it's moving <laughs> and uh, completely lose their minds over it. So, and, you know, of course, Zazu is supposed to be scary. And then her male counterpart is supposed to be brave. But the joke is he's is equally scared of, of what's happening. And that's what happened with this cop, right? So he is very much cynical about the whole thing. Very much telling everybody that he is not afraid. And then when he sees this uh, skeleton, he has an outsized reaction to uh, it moving-ish. Well, in the days before Spirit Halloween, maybe there weren't... <laughs> too many Maybe. skeletons around <laughs> and if it were real it would be somewhat valuable the man that owned the house previously was a doctor it's not described what kind i don't think but i don't i don't know i, I don't think it was a common thing to have around at that time so it kind of makes sense that if you saw it you would wonder about it and maybe get freaked out but also if you are supposedly one of New York's finest, uh, you know, uh, maybe you want to pay a little more attention to the people you're supposed to be protecting. I was I really know. expecting somebody to shoot it. <laughs> it's really interesting because I was like, <laughs> that would be funny. at this point, everybody has pistols out. Their gun discipline is horrible. We were laughing because at some point somebody holds a pistol. They hold the colonel's pistol that they picked up and they just point at the other guy they while he's talking. pointed at terrible. each other all the they time. They just fling them around. But it's funny because I was like, with this level of heightened tension, people holding pistols, I would expect somebody to shoot somebody else by accident or the skeleton or something. Uh, that, there's actually no gunshots, I don't think. There um, is. But there is we'll at the end, there. maybe. We'll yeah. There. But yeah, yeah it, it is a hilarious like, okay. And, and of course, it's 1930s. So everybody has a gun too, except Zazu. Uh, everyone has a, they just do. They don't even explain it. The Sphinx Club just brings their pistols with them. Cop obviously has a pistol, um, but people just have guns all over the place. It's hilarious. I know. <laughs> Shoot out at Melody Manor. Seriously. <laughs> all right, so the cop is freaking out, and one of the Sphinx Club is laughing at him and telling him he's being silly, puts him in a chair, trying to calm him down. And then suddenly, the cop falls through a trick door that's in the chair. So... <laughs> Very unexpected. That was pretty cool. Uh, of course, nobody sees this. So they have no idea where the cop went. He was there one minute and gone the next. This trap door somehow leads outside. So the cop comes outside the house and he's in a graveyard. He happens to back into Thelma at that exact moment and they scare one another. She lies and says she's there because her car broke down. And then the cop says, hey, we're working on a murder case here. The colonel died. You need to beat feet. And she does. <laughs> really wild. There's a few things about this scene that's so bizarre. My favorite is the side view of the cop sliding down. Like, they actually have a side view of him falling down the corridor. So they actually show what it looks like. Like an x-ray view of whatever the secret door ramp is, which is pretty funny. Because uh, that comes up a lot. This gets used more by more than one character. The other thing is, he has no regard for Thelma who asks for help, says her car is, you know, 
on the side of the road. It's got to be presumably almost midnight, if not midnight-ish. It's after. It's after, right? And (laughs) I'm busy. Get out of here, lady. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for your help, Sarah. And she's not dressed. It's not like she's dressed as if she was out for a night of the town. She's not dressed like I'm just here. So pretty inconvenienced, you would imagine. Not interested. Too bad. Good luck. Yep. Now, the intruder from earlier shows up. Brand pulls a gun on him and makes him sit in that same chair with the trapdoor that none of the other characters know has a trapdoor yet. Now, Brand's butler shows up. Inexplicably, <laughs> we see the intruder fall through the chair the same way that the cop did. Brand doesn't see it because he's yelling at his butler. And then the butler knocks Brand out. So, oh, so much going on at once. All right, we see the intruder in the graveyard now, and he raises the lid on one of the sarcophagi that's there. And, of course, there are steps in it, and he goes Right, and the sarcophagi are all tied to that legend, right? This is all supposedly the gravestones of the family members that were mentioned in the original. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember what they were called. It's in the notes, but that's the three family members' graves, supposedly. And, of course, it turns out those that's not actually a grave. One of them, at least, is a secret door right? to a secret lair. Yes. And at this point in my notes, I wrote, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and the movie time is 45 minutes. So the It'll rest of this... It'll be all over soon, honey. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, I've probably got 20 more paragraphs of my notes here. So it is not over quickly. All right, now Nora and one of the other men are out searching in the graveyard. They find the cop there. The three of them go back inside the house again, and they find that Brand has been knocked out. Now we see Yoganda and Thelma meeting in the graveyard. Thelma says, there's a meeting called for 115. Yoganda gives her a ring. And Thelma says, I won't disobey my oath. And the two of them swear fealty to one another. Interesting. Hmm. Back inside the house, everybody's talking about Yoganda and how he's suspicious. They are suspicious of him because reasons. Because Racism? Oh, Indi- <laughs> yeah, because Indian, I guess. All right, outside, the thief, the thief, the intruder person comes out of that grave and Yoganda shoots at him. Everyone oh, inside the house hears that, runs outside. That's right. They, fi- they find a gun in the graveyard. Thelma is in the house, and she takes that opportunity to go inside another trap door that's inside the grandfather clock in the house. Okay. <laughs> now, Uganda shows up in the graveyard. Everybody confronts him because he is Indian and therefore suspicious. They threaten to arrest him, but he says, if I lead you to Thelma, would you forget about arresting me? Okay. Reasonable. <laughs> so he opens up that sarcophagus, and they go down those steps that are under... In, in that grave. We see Uganda open a door when they get to the bottom of the steps. And now we're back in the lair of the crooked circle that we saw in the beginning of the movie. They're having another meeting. Uganda says they're counterfeiters. They're thieves. And he's holding a gun on them, of course, as is everyone else. He pulls the hood off the leader. It is Brand's butler. They pull the hood off the second man. That is the intruder. The next two men we don't know, and the last person under a hood is Thelma. <gasps> Everyone is shocked by that, and the butler takes that opportunity to leap for the lights, shuts them off briefly. Everybody escapes. 
Where to go, guys? Where to go? Next, we see Uganda and Thelma coming out of the trap door in the clock. So there's two entrances to this underground meeting room. One is under the sarcophagus. The other is behind a door in the clock. It's two sets of stairs. All right, the rest of the crooked circle comes out of the clock. And then Thelma and Uganda hold guns on them. I don't understand how it went on this way, but that's what happened. All right, Uganda disappears into another room, and he comes back with another older woman, and he says, she's actually the female member of the Crooked Circle. <laughs> okay? Thelma takes off the ring that Uganda gave her earlier and gives it to that woman. Uganda then says, I'm in the Secret Service. Thelma works with me. And everyone is like, what? And now we hear violin music again. A gun goes off. And... The Crooked Circle takes that opportunity to bum rush the cop who was the one that was holding the gun on them. And there's a little scuffle and the Sphinx Club brings them all back under control. That's hard to say, the Sphinx Club. They should rename it because it's hard to say. Okay, they're searching this room. Brand finds a speaker in the chair. Another thing that I didn't look up, I don't know what the audio technology was in 1932. Yeah, so and they I don't make know this, how this point because, as you said, the violin music does play, right? Because they have to; it's part of the plot. Everybody does hear the music, and it's weird because we are—we assume I certainly did at first that was part of the soundtrack. So it doesn't seem nearly as spooky as I think it was meant to be. Because, of course, in the 1930s, you didn't have any soundtrack; there was no music at all, generally speaking. Maybe at the beginning, at the end, so you really had no music, which meant uh, if you heard music, it was some part of the movie itself. So throughout the film, it was implied that there was a ghost playing violin music and what was freaking the characters out, in addition to, you know, creepy skeleton hanging and dangling and sometimes moving, was that you heard, they heard the violin music in different parts of the house. So they'd go up there. They never did a convincing job of searching for what it, I guess they bet that if they couldn't see someone playing it, they're like, creepy instead of thinking that maybe someone had a speaker or a recorder or something but uh this is another example of this sort of cutting edge technology in the 30s that's used to explain the supernatural and apparently that includes speakers i don't quite understand how that all worked it 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 wasn't something that i was aware people had access to in that time so i i don't know anyway uganda brings in the old neighbor, and he's holding a violin. He says, there's a speaker in every room. It was the butler that installed them. He says, this is my house. I've been using my violin to keep everybody out. And Thelma says, oh, there's no harm in this dude. He's just an eccentric musician. And they kind of let that plot (laughs) strand go. Now we're hearing police sirens from outside the house. And the cop takes... All the members of the Crooked Circle outside, they're going to put them in the police wagon. By the way, one of the cops that shows up to the house is one of the same ones that was in the city. I don't know how that works, but can't hire two actors, I guess. (laughs) Now we're back inside the house. The colonel comes into the room and everybody thinks it's a ghost until somebody like goes over and touches him to make sure that he's not a ghost. Nora is screaming again. And Uganda explains that he put the colonel in a state of suspended animation so that everyone would think he was dead. 
And that's something that he knows how to do because apparently he's Indian. Is he? Or is he just Secret Service? I I don't know. I just, (laughs) I, I don't know. None of this makes any sense at this point. Now, in our last big comedic swing, Nora has decided that she has had enough of all of this. She comes down the steps. She is carrying her luggage and her hat and coat. And she's asked where she's going to go. By the way, it's 1.30 in the morning. She says, I'm leaving and I'm going to marry the first man I meet. And the cop takes that opportunity to reintroduce himself. And the two of them scamper out the door as the Sphinx Club laughs. The end. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there's that's a content warning right there, which is like, apparently... If you don't want to be scared, you just need a good man. Because it is a weird statement from our Zazu Pitts character that she thinks that's her solution, I guess, to her issues, is I'm going to marry him. Because, like, why is she saying that? I don't Well, well she's either got to work or she's got to get married. Oh, right. Okay. All right. You know? Yeah. So she's so like, yeah. Because she, she's quitting, If she wants right? to quit, she doesn't want to be the housekeeper there anymore for the yeah. colonel. So she's got to go She's got to get a new job. <laughs> right. She's got to get that MRS degree. It's it's wild. So, and I'm a little bit like, you mean the cop that ran out of the attic while you were being chased by a skeleton? That's who we're going to go with? Are we a little desperate? Okay. (laughs) All right. It's comedy. It's comedy, people. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ha, ha. All right, Mike. Big question. No. Is is it a horror movie or is it something else? Uh, No. So it's... It's got moments that the characters are supposed to be horrified. I don't think the film ever really seriously makes an attempt to horrify us, right? So it's not trying to really scare us. I just, I can't imagine. There's nobody. Everybody's chewing the scenery, making up random stories. The stories don't even hold together well. Um, it is really meant to be sort of an the old dark house genre where, which is pretty cool. I have to say it's one of the better ones of the, of the genre, uh, which is this idea that everybody is sort of in this big fun house where there's lots of secret doors and lots of mysteries. So no, I do think it's funny by the way, because this just means the Colonel inherited Melody Manor, which was the lair of the crooked circle who is underneath it. You have to assume that was on purpose. Um, and I'm not sure who arranged that. Right. I, still I, I don't, don't know that he inherited that. it. He just said he was moving and that was his new house. Right. So that's a weird bizarre why are they so enmeshed right so either yoganda secret service arranged this or the crooked circle one i don't understand who did it but somebody must have because otherwise it really well look that nothing makes sense but uh yeah i guess it's probably supposed to be a comedy so old dark house tends to be uh it's almost like a moving play right the scenes move from room to room the characters go from room to room a lot of talking and then what happens is they get picked off one by one or disappear and or get separated. And this is very much the Scooby-Doo trope, right? Where the characters run through the hall and they're in different rooms and, and they and then all of a sudden one person is missing. And they're like, what happened? And it's because of all the what's supposed to be comedic. So I can see where people think it's funny. Or I, no, I can see where people think it's supposed to be funny. And uh, it is definitely that sort of old dark house trope. But it is impossible to follow. Uh, it doesn't hold together well. Um, and it certainly sets up at least a few threads. One of them, pardon the pun, one of them supposed to be uh, an attempted murder. One's supposed to be a ghost uh, and barely falls through on any of that. 
um, half-heartedly, but it really does actually have old man pull off the mask and going, it was me the whole time, you dang meddling kids, kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it is definitely not a horror. Right. I also saw it described as a whodunit, which makes sense. And so it's rather in... I'm not sure what order to put those things in. But as you said, the audience is never scared. The people in the movie are scared. And we are pretty much just laughing at them being scared. So it's a comedy and a whodunit and an old dark house. Nobody dies. It's not a horror movie, unfortunately. Okay. Now let's give some ratings. We're going to use our homegrown rating system that we came up with. And... That is how many knives, glasses of wine, and screams. And we'll start with knives. And knives represent the body count, how scary it was. Was it gory, or did it live up to its title? I'm going to start with you, Mike. How many knives? So this is actually interesting. The film does a lot of world building. I don't know that it goes anywhere, but it creates two opposing groups, like superheroes and supervillains, which is kind of funny. And it sort of sets these crooked circle folks is bad actors they're <laughs> also pardon the pun as as really tough tough characters that are you wouldn't want to mess with uh if they're assassins if they're counterfeit i don't know what you want to call them the group they seem dangerous but they are not dangerous they are the opposite of that <laughs> they are incompetent they are very bad at assassinating anybody um, they don't seem to be able to keep track of their members. And we have to talk about this because there were one female member who Thelma was supposed to be impersonating, right? So that was sort of this dangling thread that doesn't really quite go anywhere. That's why Yogandi gives her the ring. So they they don't know what each other's faces look like. So you can see her hand and the idea that if Thelma was wearing the ring, she's essentially, insert generic white woman, replacing other generic white woman under a hood. However, as that other woman points out she spends most of the movie tied up um so she's sort of she doesn't try to escape she doesn't make any noise i don't know what she's she's sort of after uganda tells her he has to give her the ring and she better listen to him she spends all that time tied up so she's just sort of thrown in a closet but you add all that up and we're sort of in this weird space where uh everybody is not treated well um nobody dies there's threats of harm but ironically never from the actual assassin's guild right so other than them saying that they're going to harm people and i'm not even convinced that came from them right so if yoganda slash secret service person his whole goal because he says this right he he put the colonel under hypnosis to to basically throw the trail off because then the assassins wouldn't try to kill him if he was dead right there's no reason so but they don't seem surprised that somebody murdered him with a violin string like they don't seem to be like well i didn't or that, or, you know, so they don't seem to know what each other's doing either. So there's a lot of that, just unbelievable incompetence for a group of assassins who don't seem to know what each other's doing or work together. You add all this up, and there's just not a lot going on. I think the, the movie threatens it. Um, so there's a little bit of like a, well, maybe it'll happen. But there's really very little delivered uh, on that. So I'm going to give it a half a knife. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a half a knife if we go through all of the points. Zero bodies, zero scares, zero gore. It did, the title made sense. That was the name of the of the uh, criminal group. Uh, but there, it really didn't meet any of the other metrics that we set, uh, which are our own. So, <clears throat> yeah. That we expected there to be horror movies in this horror movie yeah. set. and Screams, <laughs> at least. Well, I screams. guess people scream, yeah. but I don't know. 
didn't make us scream. <laughs> no, so much screaming. The next rating is Glasses of Wine, and this represents how fun it was to watch, and did it have any unique moments? I'm going to start with you, Mike. How many glasses of wine between zero and five are you going to give the Crooked Circle? So this is not what we wanted, but maybe what we deserved. So it's definitely a film that's interesting. It's different, right? So we've seen old Dark House films. I think I've seen actually a lot of old Dark House films at this point, collectively, between you and I uh, uh, in this series, and very few deliver like this, right? There's a lot of secret doors. There's a like you. It felt like a real house almost. Like they had this all set up, but like you said, there's like at least three secret doors, a secret passage. Um, there's a creepy skeleton thing. Uh, there's two different old men coming up with random folk tales. Uh, there's technology being used to create scares. Uh, it really goes for it. I, I, I appreciate that. I actually like the idea of a female assassin, which was sort of revolutionary at the time. The plot really goes nowhere unfortunately, but uh, the concept was interesting. So it does a lot. Whether or not you can follow it is a whole other problem, right? So it does a lot. I don't know that it delivers on almost anything that it promises. And it wraps things up with sort of a lot of confusion around where the characters are, what their actual roles are. Um, It just feels very loosely held together. So, I mean, I enjoyed for what it was, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's a film that is overall enjoyable sort of for what it probably set out to do. Again, maybe people in the thirties would find it interesting. The humor certainly falls flat for us today. Mm. We never really believe the threats uh, as to what it is. So I'm going to give it, I'm kind of waffling between one and a half and two. Um, I think I would give it one and a half for uh, glasses of wine. Okay. Well, going on the metrics of glasses of wine, was it fun to watch and did it have any unique moments? There were several small little moments such as the shadow of Yoganda and the female member of the crooked circle that was a fun moment you don't see that a lot the way that he was within frame and then moved into shadow that had to take a lot to set up there were a few other points where you had just interesting scene shifts that it's the shorthand that we all understand now as people who watched you know have seen a lot of movies and it was kind of still i think in its infancy and being developed in the 30s but they did make the filmmakers made good use of it and then there's those trapdoors now here's what's funny about these trapdoors is that us growing up on scooby-doo scooby-doo would have gotten that from this movie or others mm-hmm. like it so this was the origination of these things of the clue style running around the house of the Scooby-Doo style, there's trapdoors everywhere and people are wearing masks and you're never really sure who is who. And also, the violin playing, which I think is probably used in a lot of movies, but the one that came very strongly to me, what because of course it does, is the uh, remake of Frankenstein, the Mel Brooks version, because... <laughs> That's used in that movie as well, that there's a ghostly violin they can't figure out, and it's just somebody who's trying to manipulate everybody. So I was recognizing that all of these different things that we might consider tropes now were brand new in the 30s, and that if we want to think about today's films, we have to think about where all these ideas have come from and that things maybe we thought were unique are not because this was the beginning of them. 
So I'm going to give it more glasses of wine, I think, because of that, because it had the kernel of some great ideas. It was just too hard to watch. It was really hard to write a summary that made sense because there was so much going on and so much in and out and running around. Although if you think about it, like if I had to write a summary for Clue, I don't even want to think about it because <laughs> that because there's there's still a lot of running around, people in different rooms, lights going out, although there's Clue has a really high body count. It's the movie needed another hour to let all of these things to breathe because then it could have been a great movie like Clue is. It just didn't have enough space. And we were wondering at certain points what was going on, which was great because you didn't know as the audience. You weren't given any information. But the problem was is that it in the end became confusing because things weren't repeated for us. And we're used to that now that you see the flashbacks and so forth. So I had to watch it twice to understand what was going on. And as we've speculated previously, perhaps people didn't watch these movies more than once in, in those days. So I am going to give it uh, two and a half glasses of wine for those reasons, for all those unique moments and for the little things that I appreciated. Um, all right. Our last rating is Screams. Screams is an overall rating, but it does not have to have anything to do with glasses of wine or knives. I'm going to start with you, Mike. How many Screams are you going to give the Crooked Circle? I give it two. Um, for everything you said, I, I appreciate the artistry. Um, I did not appreciate the rest of the film in terms of what it actually achieved. Uh, Zazu Pitts is an, a require, an acquired taste at best yeah. uh, and in little doses. Uh, I think we've said before she was probably inspiration for olive oil. Um, but boy, a little Zazu Pitts goes a long way. And it's almost like she's in a different film. You know, the jokes and everything. It's just like the old old Dan slash old man coming in telling her a story just feels completely like they're on a different set. There's just a lot of stuff that just runs in parallel that's meant to sort of make this funny and it's not funny. So two, two screams. Yeah, I'm going to agree. I really enjoyed some of the small moments. I can't imagine how difficult this movie was to shoot. I'm not sure if it was, if it's considered a pro a poverty row film. Probably. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. It just, Putting in the trap doors, people coming in and out of clocks and, and lifting up. I mean, really, A-plus special effects department. And, of course, these are all practical effects as well. So I, I really, really appreciate that. It's just that it was so difficult to follow, and a couple of things were never resolved. I didn't make a list of them. I probably should have. But there were so many points that just never – characters don't react the way that you would think that they would. And don't do things that seem reasonable in the moment. <laughs> uh, and most of them aren't afraid. The cop and Nora are afraid. Nobody else is really afraid of anything. Yeah. The colonel's never... The, the guy who theoretically is the marked for death guy never seems concerned. Not concerned. Right up to the end where he's theoretically murdered, which we never see. We just find out later. But it is funny because you're just like... Does anyone take any of this seriously? Because Brand, you know, has evidence that two people with no masks on essentially broke into his house, at least one of them, and the other one threatened him and, and sided with the intruder. And no one seems to even care about that. Like, his Brand sort of, sort of says a little bit of that, and they're all like, eh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, they just don't react as you would expect. I mean, that's the thing about great writing, isn't it, is that... 
People tend to behave in certain ways, although under great stress or fear, people might react unexpectedly. But most of the characters were not afraid of what was going on. And given that they were supposedly criminologists and two of them were in the Secret Service, and then the way that the the cop character behaved, it, it just it just didn't hold true and it was just used for comedy. But I guess maybe that's that's the comedy, isn't it? Is that people are reacting in ways that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Um, so, but props for what was probably a really difficult and complicated shoot. And at night and the whole deal, but at the same time, it just got very confusing and muddled and we found almost none of it funny. The cop did have a couple of good lines that they were funny, but Nora running around moaning got very stale very quickly. And I, and I don't know if that was something that people found funny then because I don't, I don't find that funny now. The whole I probably said the... before, olive, I've never found olive oil interesting or funny either. Yeah. The whole premise of the film is very much based on these assassins threatening this group who are amateurs, right? So that's the other thing. Like the assassins are supposed to be like a professional group of dangerous people. Um, so the, the Crooked Circle's bad news. And then the Sphinx Club is supposed to be kind of these playboys who, you know, like apparently it's like a gentleman's club kind of gets together. And if you get married, you can't be in it, apparently. So... Um, that contrast never effectively gets pulled off. And it's because this, the crooked circle for all it's really strong in the beginning, like intimidating, cloaked, pulling names out of a skull, uh, you know, appearance never delivers on the fact that they're in any way dangerous. Um, and that's it, unfortunate because with a, one or two tweaks could be, but, uh, they don't have the time. They just didn't have the time. Yeah. Yeah. They, I would submit though, that. The Sphinx Club is called Amateurs, I think, by a character or in one of the newspaper clippings. But they did, in fact, get their man at one point. Yeah. So I would call them professional. I wouldn't call them amateurs. Yeah, and it might be because they're not police, right? So there's always right. that weird situation. They're not or legitimate in the sense, in right, way. they're not like a government entity or whatever. And it's interesting because, of course, so who are the sort of real heroes to this? Because it's sure as hell not brand. It's not even the Sphinx Club, who's, like, hapless as well, honestly. It's the two Secret Service agents who really end up sort of solving a lot of this. So it's kind of funny because <laughs> the Sphinx Club's not all that effective either, even for that one group, which now you have to question, did Thelma help? Uh, you know, Uganda's new. I don't know. Did they even catch that guy? I question everything about this film. By the end of it, I was questioning reality, actually. <laughs> All right, Mike, let's now move on to the character that you created based on this film that is for use in people's tabletop role-playing games. Who was this character? <laughs> so, as often happens, I get very frustrated with these movies, and then I seek to correct them. And sometimes the way that happens is I don't play along the rules of what they set out because I'm so aggravated by the way the movie was, you know, was essentially uh, presented. And... This is true here. Uh, and what often happens, and this is, I have, it's been a while because for the most part, I think we've seen films that held together pretty well for a good stretch, but we're back to not a good stretch, uh, is the movie poster. The premise of this film, face value, put the assassins aside, put the, our criminologists aside, was that there is a ghost, a violin playing ghost in the house. 
uh, and that he's a skeleton. So, and that's on the poster. He's in the background. There's this ghost skeleton playing a violin. It's kind of funny because there's never, there's no violin ever seen. And it's, I'm always like, I guess it's like a ghostly violin that just come, the sound of it comes from the skeleton. I don't know why you would think that. Like they didn't put the violin near the skeleton or anything. There's just the skeleton. So uh, I went completely off the ranch. There's none of these characters in it. He's called the Crooked One. He is a former bard. Again, we're using D&D terms, who is sort of a lich. He's this uh, undead being who is a crime boss. So he is a bard turned crime boss. Uh, who continues his criminal activities from beyond the grave. So he is this real, very real. He's not a ghost, actually. He's a a walking skeleton who plays the violin. And he, I mean, you can't not use the crooked circle. That's too good to to use. But he is a paranoid violin-playing maniac who regularly sets out his assassins. And these assassins all have tremendous belief in him because he's dead and he's been around for a while. Um, so they, he's just called the Crooked One. And the Crooked One, uh, from behind the shadows, is constantly striking out at his enemies that he thinks might uh, be onto his nefarious plans. And therefore, he's quite dangerous because in a lot of ways, he's he's picking on anybody. Uh, the Sphinx Club being one of the potential, uh, I, I don't know that be so much foes, but victims that he would assign uh, some of his assassins. So you have the assassins that certainly is part of his organization, which is great. I love that. And then you have uh, the crooked one himself, who is this sort of nefarious skeleton that plays the violin. And he can do a lot of damage if he wants to, uh, using all the bard abilities and magic that bards have in D&D, which are, they're actually the most powerful they've ever been in, in the fifth edition. So yeah, he's he's a different character than what we've done in the past. And I, I couldn't resist. I love the idea of a violin playing skeleton being a criminal mastermind. Okay, well, here's the thing now, though, is that when I think of bards, I think of, like, the lead singer in a band, mm-hmm. like, literal rock stars. They, it, it doesn't really matter. They've got charisma. They've got high charisma, and they're usually picking up somebody, you know, at their shows. So now this is a lich. So how does that all balance out in this character? when bards are usually physically attractive. Yeah, so look, he's got high charisma uh, as a leader. He's not physically attractive, but he's a leader in the sense that he's intimidating and and but also charismatic. He One of the things is that he's effective at what he does, and what he does is kill people through sound and music. Um, he's he's actually got a lot of powers that you'll see with satyrs. It's a similar thing where he can play anything from a tune that makes you dance to a frightening melody that terrifies you, because we have Zazu Pitts, uh, to a strain that um, actually just totally charms you as well. So he has... A lot of different ways. He also can just cause sort of uh, psychic damage. Um, and he can use his violin to full-on just do thunder uh, thunder damage attacks. That's his main abilities. So, yeah, he's he's not your typical uh, charismatic bard. But he is, in the sense, a, a leader who is not to be underestimated. And he uses his violin music not to entertain, but to haunt. And uh, I think that makes him, again, a fun sort of different character. And of course, he has a whole full spell list that he can use that's very different. Um, And all that involves uh, mental uh, sort of gymnastics. So spells that really mess with you, uh, which I think is in theme with what happens in the film, right? So confusing people, terrifying them, misleading them, all that fun stuff. Yeah, he, he definitely uses his bardic powers for evil, and it's not to entertain. Right. And that I don't know, it's kind of a very different way of thinking about charisma, I think, than I normally think about it. And maybe a lot of other people do 
as well, because it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are physically attractive or that your personality is attractive. It really could just mean that you're a strong leader, and that's what this right. guy is. Yep. Okay, so where might people use this character in their tabletop role-playing games? He sounds like he's really powerful. He is. I like him. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about is keeping him in the context of uh, other criminal organizations, right? So he's he's actually not tremendously powerful. I mean, he's top mid-tier, but he um, he's the kind of character that is, you could just cross him by accident, right? He's paranoid. He didn't get this, he didn't live this long or un- unlive this long. Um, by being complacent. So he definitely sort of sees enemies everywhere, which makes his group pretty dangerous. Presumably, he hires them out, too, because um, so, he's successful, and it can't just be all of his enemies. He's, he's hiring out his assassins for for uh, targets that people pay for. But that makes him sort of a unique spot in a campaign. He could be anywhere. Uh, he works well, obviously, in sort of the old Dark House genre, because then if he decides to get involved, he's trouble. Uh, but yeah, I mean, anywhere there's assassins, which in Dungeons and Dragons, they could be just about everywhere. His, his crooked circle minions could show up. Uh, it is, it is a gift. The crooked circle is just great. I mean, if we could just distill that one minute of, you know, randomly picking who gets to murder somebody while you wear hoods and pick out of a skull. Um, I love it. But, uh, yeah, so as you can imagine, he's that kind of character where, uh, powerful characters like player characters, PCs could easily end up crossing his radar and then being the subject of his wrath. And then, of course, you know, in a lot of ways, this film, as I pointed out earlier, is about the secret layer of the Crooked Circle. They're, they're, they live down below. That's their big meeting place, is underneath Melody Manor. So that's actually his lair. So a, a, an assault on the lair, which I think could well happen if PCs get, you know, glom on to what he's doing, uh, could is really where you'd see him. And that's where you... you you would see uh, him sort of come into his own. And that's everything from, by the way, he can make secret doors appear and disappear. And he can take a lot of his musical stuff and make it apply to the entire house. So a lot of his attacks uh, get even more dangerous when he's in his lair. But he is that kind of character where you would expect to probably feel him from afar at first. And then when it's time to try and really track him down, that's when he's at his most dangerous, which is probably a crumbling mansion somewhere in the countryside. Or D and D Long Island equivalent, right? Yeah, if only the first five minutes of this movie was representative of the rest of it, because it did start out real strong. All right, where can people find this character and all of the rest that we have available to accompany this series of podcasts? And as I sort of hinted at, so um, he fits in well with a group, right? So if you got other assassins, they could be part of this, the Crooked Circle. Uh, we have this, the Crooked One. I got to, <laughs> Crooked One is part of the Crooked He leads the Crooked Circle. The Crooked, they're all crooked together. Uh, and Crooked being, by the way, evil, uh, not a line that is crooked. But it, maybe they are. You could do a little wavy circle. I don't know if that counts as a circle anymore. Uh, but yes, the Crooked... Um, one and his minions are in five E foes, Gothic villains. So that's a collection of all 50 of these villains that you've seen. And he fits there pretty well. So a lot of these villains, you know, they sort of stand on their own. Um, but this one, he's, he's actually really definitely integrate, intricately tied to an organization. So that makes him a good candidate for five E foes, Gothic villains, but you can get him separately without sort of the crooked circle details, uh, on Patreon. So we release 
every week, uh, a villain for free. That's patreon.com slash Talion, T-A-L-I-E-N. You'll see this video where I'm talking. You'll see a clip there as well as uh, the uh, snapshot of the PDF of this villain of the Crooked One particularly. So you'll get him for free. If you want, for a low, low fee, monthly fee, you can join us and then you get all of this stuff. So you get this like hundreds, I think we're almost like up to a thousand at the top tier of content uh, of everything we've ever produced for Dungeons and Dragons and some other games as well. And uh, that's part of it. So 5e Foes Gothic Villains is part of that. If you don't want that, if you don't want a monthly subscription, you can buy it right on DriveThruRPG. And that's, again, 5e Foes Gothic Villains. Now, this is compatible as part of two different bundles. One of the bundles is sort of the Gothic Toolkit. I I renamed it recently. Uh, It's a Gothic Campaign Toolkit. And that's got Adventures uh, as well as the 5e RPG Gothic Adventures uh, book that we wrote. And that's to help you position all this, particularly fear... And a lot of the gothic stuff that you see in Ravenloft, that's all meant to be a a nice package deal. So if you want to sort of run a gothic campaign, these villains are part of it, but they're not the only part. You can get them at a discount. Then there is also all the podcasts for free with this 5e foes gothic villain. So we have that bundle as well. And of course, you can just buy, if you don't want any of that, you just want the supplement, you can just get it on DriveThruRPG. We also release all this on social media. So when it goes on Patreon, three days later, we will release it to the public. So our patrons get it first for three days, exclusive, and then we share that one little snapshot of the villain, Crooked One being included, uh, to our Instagram, to our Twitter, and to our Facebook. And they're all World of Wellstar. So lots of ways that you can buy this, engage with it. If you're not interested, by the way, we absolutely encourage you to follow us, which is, I'm so glad Patreon did this. I thought they did when we first got a Patreon, and they don't. Now they do, which is, you can just follow patreon.com slash Talion. So if it's T-A-L-I-E-N. If you don't want to uh, subscribe, fine. Uh, but this way, you will actually get notifications of the free updates that we do. So lots of ways. Please like and subscribe. That'd be great. Yes. Follow on social media, World of Wellstar, and shares, likes, comments below are all appreciated. Ratings in your podcast app of choice are also appreciated. They uh, will help us understand what we're doing right, maybe what we're doing not so right. (laughs) Um, Because literally nobody asked us to make this show. We just decided to do it. Okay. Mike, I think that does it for episode 34 of the Crooked Circle from 1932. We unfortunately will see Zazu Pitts, I think, at least one more time in this God series of movies. <laughs> I don't know about some of the other actors. I think only Lon Chaney Jr. has appeared as many times as Zazu Pitts. <laughs> And, Not a competition, guys. <laughs> I don't know. And if Bella Lugosi is coming at some point. So at some point, we do get to watch a Bella Lugosi movie. I don't know when that will be because I am not skipping ahead. I am taking these as they come. I am practicing radical acceptance. That is where you are finding me in this period of my life. All right, Mike, thanks so much for all of the work that you do to make these characters and to write them up and to explain them and create the videos, etc. And we will see you next time on episode 35. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. 
the quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at patreon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. All right, you ready? Nope. We're going to do it anyway.